Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, we'll talk with Bob Bass, author of the book, When Steamboats Reigned in Florida. Hamilton Diston came down from uh, Philadelphia, and he was sort of a modern-day playboy, if you will. He came down here to go sport fishing and so on and so forth. We'll visit with two generations of women from the town of Gifford and hear Florida history through the music of Doug Spears. Well, you know, the real Florida is not is not the tourist destination. It's home. There are people that live here, that have always lived here, that love what this place is and don't necessarily envision it as something else. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. As the 19th century ended and the 20th century began, trains were having a profound impact on the development of Florida. Railways created by Henry Flagler, Henry Plant, and other entrepreneurs brought passengers and products in and out of the Sunshine State and led to the construction of luxury hotels and new communities. As Bob Bass points out in his book, When Steamboats Reigned in Florida, decades before the first trains arrived in Florida, steamboats were bringing goods, supplies, and tourists here. Exactly. Around 1830, 1839, somewhere along there is when uh, noticeable traffic started happening on the, on the rivers and so forth. And uh, the first real use they had for them was during the Seminole Wars when transport troops and supplies and things like that up and down the rivers. Many people envisioned steamboats as passenger ships, which they were, but as Bob Bass explains, they served other functions as well, particularly in Florida. The Florida boats operated in much shallower waters and uh, much more congested also with the hyacinths and things like that. So most of our boats were about 40 feet long and maybe 10 or 15 feet wide. And the paddle wheel was mounted on the stern, of course. And in a lot of the boats, the water from the paddle wheel just splashed on the back end of the boat, so they called them wet-tailed steamboats. One of the early investors in Florida's steamboat industry was Hamilton Diston, a fun-loving young man from a wealthy Philadelphia family who was known for taking financial risks that often paid off. Hamilton Diston came down from uh, Philadelphia, 
And he was sort of a modern-day playboy, if you will. He came down here to go sport fishing and so on and so forth. Well, he heard that the state was in dire straits um, back, back in those days, and the, federal bu or the state budget was about broke, and the state was offering up for sale two and a half million acres of Florida swampland. So he very promptly bought it for 25 cents an acre. Uh, the, the railroads, as we mentioned earlier, had, had been offered right away and so forth all through Florida to bring the railroads, and they just never did. They just never did it. So Hamilton Diston bought up all this land and sold a lot of it for profit that was not underwater and paid the state what they wanted their part. But while he did all that, he, he got the idea that Florida was covered with rivers and streams and things, and what an excellent highway of transportation that would be. So he settled in Kissimmee, right in the center of the state, and he dredged and opened the waterways all the way from Kissimmee, all the way down to Lake Okeechobee. And once you get to Lake Okeechobee, you can come out on the East Coast or the West Coast. And he started steamboat trafficking, commercial trafficking in earnest with his steamboats. He also built steamboats up in Kissimmee. And um, so that was Hamilton Diston's role. The steamboats continued to grow and prosper in Florida until around 1920, somewhere along in there, and the railroads finally came. And after that, the steamboats just kind of faded out of existence because the railroads could do everything a lot cheaper and a lot more economically. In his book, When Steamboats Reigned in Florida, Bob Bass provides an overview of the history of Florida's steamboat industry and then focuses on individual rivers and particular Florida towns most impacted by steamboat traffic. Palatka was one. It, it brought a lot of commerce and, and traffic to Palatka. And, of course, Kissimmee itself, you know, being where it all started. Uh, <clears throat> anywhere along the route, the, the towns just really did well. Uh, even little small towns like Fort Bassinger, uh, right up near the mouth of, of Lake Okeechobee, it, it was a, a bustling little, little town at one time, simply because of steamboats. Uh, uh, one little note was that when the railroads did come, uh, all of that area along the Kissimmee River, which is uh, probably 90 miles from Lake Kissimmee to Lake Okeechobee, all that just kind of dried up because none of the railroads came anywhere near there. And so they were probably some of the last ones that were serviced by steamboats back in those days. Florida writer Harriet Beecher Stowe was inspired by the St. John's River, and she helped Florida's early tourism industry by often waving to steamboat passengers from her front porch in Mandarin. It's been reported that the author's appearances were not random, that she was paid by the steamboat companies to greet her fans from the riverbank. Yeah, Harriet Beecher Stowe did come out on her balcony and do that. Whether they paid her or not, I don't know. And uh, the steamboats down the St. John's especially was, was the start of tourism in Florida, if you, if you will. Uh, Robert E. Lee came down here and took a trip on a steamboat, for instance. And so did Ulysses S. Grant. They both did. And they both had to go and make trips on steamboats to see what all the excitement was about. Silver Springs was, was opened up and started because of steamboats on the Ocklawaha River and up through there. Silver Springs got its start. So they really helped the, uh, Florida get started in tourism. While Bob Bass carefully researched his book, When Steamboats Reigned in Florida, some of the information used came from his family's personal experiences on Florida's waterways. My wife and I purchased a, a houseboat back in 1986, and 
we started exploring the Kazimbee River in earnest ourselves. On weekends, we'd go and camp along the river and so forth. And a play, one of the places we used to go was called Kisso. It's spelled K-I-C-C-O, and it's pronounced Kisso. And Kisso is on one of the old river runs that, that came off of the Kissimmee. And we just loved the place. There were some old ruins there, and we used to go bottle collecting and all kinds of things, you know, there at Kisso. And I found out it was a steamboat stop. And we even located, we think, what might have been one of the docks where the, where the boats pulled in. So that's really what got my uh, research started about boats was our trips up and down the Kissimmee there. And uh, I started digging into it more and more and more and finding out about how Diston started, you know, right up upstream from where we were, and the boats all came that way. So that was that was my own personal experience, if you will, about about steamboats and steamboating. The book "When Steamboats Reigned in Florida" by Bob Bass is published by the University Press of Florida. It's easy to purchase great books about Florida history and culture online by going to myfloridahistory.org and clicking on Shop. In addition to the Bob Bass book, When Steamboats Reigned in Florida, you can find many other titles, including the new edition of Florida's Frontier, The Way It Was, by Mary Ida Bass Barber Shearheart. Her family's ancestors fought on both sides of the infamous barber Mizell family feud of 1870, and this action-packed novel is filled with historical fact. At MyFloridaHistory.org, you can also purchase the new edition of the classic Florida book Palmetto Country by Stetson Kennedy. Between 1937 and 1942, Kennedy led the Florida Writers Project for the WPA and traveled throughout Florida interviewing Greek sponge divers in Tarpon Springs, Cracker Cowboys, cigar workers in Ybor City, and many others. Another example of the great books available at MyFloridaHistory.org is A Trip to Florida for Health and Sport, the lost 1855 novel of Cyrus Parkhurst Condit, edited by Morris O'Sullivan and Wengshun Zhang. This exciting handwritten manuscript from 1855 was unpublished until now, and the editors place the work in historical and literary context. These books and many more are available at MyFloridaHistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Don't 
darkness turns to light and the world is at peace this miracle God gave to me gives me strength when I'm weak I find reason to believe in my daughter's eyes Gifford is an historic African-American town in Indian River County Oral history specialist Janie Gould from WQCS speaks with two generations of women from Gifford. Two women from Indian River County's Gifford community grew up during distinctly different eras, but they share the same core values. They're a mother and daughter, Johnny Ross, 77, and Fran Ross, 54. Johnny Ross was seven when her parents moved to Gifford from Georgia. It was in the 1930s. Florida was a little bit better than Georgia. And back in, I say, older days, people would migrate from one town to another just to do better. Her father's work on U.S. One road crews took the family up and down the coast of Florida and Georgia. Johnny's mother worked, too. My mom would teach people how to write their names and how to uh, sign their checks. And then she would work in the um, company's uh, kitchens. When the family settled in Gifford, there was no electricity or running water. But, but we did fine. It was just a little small community, a good little neighborhood, and everybody visited everybody. You could get around it in 30 or 40 minutes. Johnny Ross went to school in Gifford and was named Miss Gifford High School when she was a senior. Until she got a bicycle, she had walked five miles to school each day and then another five miles to her mother's restaurant, where she washed dishes. The Busy Bee Cafe was in the Spillway, a black settlement on the edge of Vero Beach. The Spillway vanished long ago. Sometimes we would have people from Vero to come in and buy special products, collard greens, sweet potato pies, and potato salad. Johnny Ross and her parents lived on 28th Avenue in Gifford. After she married, she and her husband, Red Ross, had seven children. They also lived on 28th Avenue, where Johnny still lives. Red Ross had a landscaping business. After their fifth child was born, Johnny worked in citrus and as a domestic worker. She also was Gifford's postmistress. Fran Ross is one of the couple's four daughters. The Buckner family, which had about ten children around the corner, the Reeses, there were five of them, the Jacksons, the Brits. You could always play ball and find a friend and have some fun. Fran attended high school before full-scale integration was ordered. The policy of the time was called freedom of choice. Students could go to either Gifford or Vero Beach High School. Fran was among a small group of blacks who decided to go to Vero. Growing up, it was uh, sort of a no-brainer that almost everything that was new and shiny was in Vero Beach and certainly not in Gifford. My brothers and sisters chose to remain at Gifford. All of them? All of them. Did you get any flack from them about that? Sure did. I couldn't put Vero Beach High School bumper stickers on the car. It didn't cause a big problem for me. Out of respect, I just didn't put it on there. How were you treated at Vero Beach High School? We were welcomed. I had a home ec class. Ms. Cleary came in and said, this is the food that we will cook tomorrow and the rest of the foods for the week. Everybody said, okay, no problem. So after class, I went up to her and asked, what do we have to bring? And she says, nothing, just show up. Because at Gifford, my sister had to bring the food that they had to cook. The books were new. All the equipment was new or relatively new. As opposed to Gifford, we didn't even have Petri dishes. After graduating in 1971, Fran Ross went on to Indian River Community College, Florida Atlantic University, and Southern University Law School. She practices law in Fort Pierce and ran for circuit judge last year. At 13, I knew I wanted to be a lawyer. My grandmother was a civil rights worker. 
So with me watching the civil rights issues on TV and talking with my grandmother, I decided if I was a lawyer, I could come back and help people. Sitting in her mom's living room the other day, Fran had a question for her mother. I have two children, mm-hmm. and that's enough for me. I can only imagine dealing with seven different personalities and wants and issues. How'd you do that? It was very easy to me. I was real to be family-oriented. When I got my family, I just loved it. That was Johnny Ross and her daughter Fran. Janie Gould from WQCS prepared that report. In my daughter's eyes, I can see the future. A reflection of who I am and what will be. And though she'll grow and someday leave, maybe When I'm gone, I hope you'll see how happy she made me, for I'll be there in my daughter's This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Nearly 20 years ago, an eminent folklorist observed that Florida is unique. Over the last 50 years, it's fostered more singers writing songs about the state than any other. Bill Dudley talks to a man who wants to make more people aware of our heritage through sharing his own love of the Florida story. Well, you know, the real Florida is not not the tourist destination. It's home. There are people that live here that have always lived here, that love what this place is and don't necessarily envision it as something else. It's it's not something to change and be made into something. It is something that already was and is to be treasured for what it really is, the, the natural resources it has, the climate that it has, the people that it has. Well, there's a bad wind blowing off Okeechobee He's seen lightning in the sky. Orlando singer-songwriter Doug Spears grew up in a 1920s cracker house built by his grandfather near the central Florida town of Leesburg. Today, in his music, Spears addresses what he sees as widespread ignorance of what Florida is all about. I'm, I'm a guy from Lake County, Florida, that's, that's just very proud of, of being a native Floridian and having roots that run deep back into the 1800s in the state. And I'm disheartened occasionally when folks come down I-95 and go to Disney World or spend spring break in Daytona and think they've been to Florida, and they haven't. The concept of a lot of my music is to try to expose the culture and the history and, and the personalities and the people and places that exist here in what I think of as the real Florida not the Florida that gets advertised outside the state. Doug Spears began playing guitar and singing as a boy. He released his first album in 2005. Many of the songs on his 2010 release, Welcome Home, reflect a lifelong fascination with our state's history. I I got to know both of my great-grandmothers very well. Both of them lived to be 197 and 104. And so I got to hear a lot of things about things as they were way back in Florida. The stories were always interesting. I could sit and listen to them talk about things for hours. 
Well, from Northwest Florida down the old Spanish Trail, men have been living in a tepentine hell. They've been working. They've been drawing that sap out of those pines, singing, "Good God Almighty, get me out of this old tepentine." All day for a dollar or so. You spend twice what you got at that old company store on credit. Then they own you until you die. Well, good God Almighty, get me out this old turpentine. The turpentine industry was throughout the southeastern states. Back when those camps were running in the late 1800s and early 1900s, that was a tough place to be. Backbreaking, brutal work, typically done by either former slaves or families of former slaves, and it was just slavery by other means. It was much like the coal mines in West Virginia. They made very little money, but they bought everything from a company store at inflated prices on credit, and they never got out. And those blacks didn't call it turpentine, they called it tepentine. Well, good God almighty, get my kids out of this old tepentine. In his song Hemingway's Hurricane, Spears draws a parallel between the 1935 Labor Day storm in the Florida Keys and Hurricane Katrina in 2005. Hemingway lived down in Old Key West And he drank in the bars with Uncle Sam's best And when he heard how they died he flew off in a rage His mighty pen roared at how they'd been betrayed Oh, his mighty pen roared at how they'd been betrayed it was Labor Day, 35 Pressure falling on a rising tide South by southeast, break when with no name Remembered as Hemingway's hurry Now is Hemingway's hurricane Now who left you there and who knows why Oh Papa demands with a fiery eye Was it careless or callous, no less to blame after three score and ten, relive the shame and remember Hemingway's hurricane. The story of the World War I veterans that were sent down there basically to get them out of Washington because they've been protesting the, the failure of the government to pay their combat bonuses from World War I. 
the fact they've been sent down there and then they got left in the path of that god-awful storm coming through there that killed 75% of them. And while it was on a smaller scale in terms of the, to be blunt, the body count, it mirrored what happened almost 70 years to the day later on the Gulf Coast. Again, a situation where obviously something really bad is about to happen and, and the people that were in charge either didn't act or didn't act quick enough or didn't do enough to be sure that, that the damage was minimized. Ernest Hemingway lived in Key West at the time, and he became the champion of those families who lost loved ones in that storm to get an investigation started just like Katrina did. Spears says his love of telling stories has been inspired by the words of Florida's great novelists and chroniclers. The writers like Patrick Smith, Marjorie Kennan Rawlings, when you, when you read their work written about people in frontier Florida, you find some fascinating characters, some good, some bad. Guys like Lewis Powell that grew up in Live Oak and became part of the plot to assassinate President Lincoln. Like all states, you have things that are good and things that are bad about home, about yourself. And, you know, if you're going to understand a place, you have to understand both the good and the bad. Now the Withlacoochee River runs a twisting northern flow. Up from a green swamp mother to the Gulf of Mexico. My favorite things are the rivers. The Withlacoochee River, the St. John's River, the Suwannee River, and the things that you see when you travel those rivers from canoe. The things that you see if you get out and experience those quiet places, those wild places that Florida still has, that most states have. I'm talking about Florida, but people connect to what I'm saying about my state because they see it in their own state. Get off the highways, get off the interstates, and wander some of the back roads and meet the people. Stop and talk to folks. Singer-songwriter Doug Spears. His latest CD release is Welcome Home. You can find him on the web at DougSpearsMusic.com. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Bill Dudley. Oh, with the Coochie Dreamer, come and set your spirit free. Slip off on a current, black water mystery. Like a wild and careless lover, whose ways you can't control. This with Lacoochee River still flows on through your soul. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us again next week, and until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org. While you're there, click on the Join Now button to become a member of the Florida Historical Society. You'll receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, four issues of our newsletter, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broadmarkle.
Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated.